Have you ever dreamed of becoming an interior designer? You don't want to go back to university, you don't want to work for a large firm, but you just don't know how to get started. You want flexibility, you want to pursue your passion, and you want to make income. Well, you should definitely check out the Uploft Interior Design Academy. It's my proprietary program that I've used internally for years and have made available to the public. Not only do you get video modules that you can take at your own pace, but you also get one-on-one coaching sessions with me, group coaching sessions with our Facebook group of Academy students, and so much more. If you're interested, Get more information and sign up for an exploratory call with me at affordableinteriordesign.com slash academy. Once again, that's affordableinteriordesign.com slash academy. It's time to start living the life of your dreams. high-end designer or a lot of money to get a luxe look be your own interior designer this is affordable interior design the podcast here's your host betsy Hellman. hi everyone i am so excited to be back again with you this week i am joined by a guest today andy ciccone from the poor pearls almanac is here he has his own podcast and a lot of interesting ideas and i'm so excited to have you on today andy Thank you so much. So let's kick it off by you introducing yourself, telling us a little bit about your podcast and what you've got going on. Sure. So my name is Andy. I host the Poor Pearls Almanac as well as another uh, podcast tomorrow today. And the general idea is thinking about the, in both projects, on thinking about the future and what role we have as individuals and as communities in what the future looks like given uh, the the state of global affairs, we'll say. Um, and our, our interest is primarily around the idea of what is community? How do we build community? And how does community pair with the, the non-human community around us? So the, the plants, the animals, uh, and what responsibilities do we have in managing those, those local ecosystems? Well, I love the idea of how it all goes back to sort of home, right? And how we live, where we live, how we maintain the world around us. So that's where I really found a synergy between your show and this show is kind of thinking about living and living at home in a more holistic way rather than just furniture and artwork. What else makes a home and how can we foster some ideals through the way that we live? Um, so how did you get interested in this idea of sort of, I know sometimes on your podcast, you talk about homesteading, a lot of gardening, what got you into that? So my parents are immigrants from Southern Italy. Um, when my dad came over, uh, my grandfather had managed, uh, farmland there, like at most people in like smaller towns. And that, you know, if you were to go, if you go in any like city and you see, you drive down the street and there's always that one house that's got like every square foot of it is like grapevines and, you know, these giant flowery bushes and things like that. That was basically where I grew up. It was like one of those types of houses. And that kind of, uh, 
as I got older, I kind of moved away from it. And then as I got older again, I returned to the, those ideals and understood a little bit better of why that was so important to my family. And the idea of how do we pair the our, our goals, our interests, the things that make us care about things with the, the food systems around us um, comes out in a lot of different ways. So the one thing I, I like to use as an example when I talk about like finding place and time in your food is like, why, why are we so obsessed as a culture with something like the fall? Like, uh, you know, there's always the joke of like uh, white girls loving like the, the pumpkin spice latte from Starbucks in the fall. And it's like, why, why is that a big deal? And it's because a part of us is very aware that something is missing in the way we live because traditionally people would eat based on the seasons and things like that. And that's been mostly taken away from us with the exception of a handful of things, you know, whether that's, you know, specific foods that come out during fall or uh, Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever it might be. There's only a handful of experiences where we really get that. And we kind of, I don't want to say go overboard with it, but, but it's pointing to something deeper that's missing in the way we relate with food and our ecology and the seasons around us. We kind of crave going back to that seasonal rhythm that we now don't have because we can get strawberries 365 days a year, even though they're only supposed to be here for a brief time. Exactly. There's, there's something we all understand, even if we can't articulate it, that's missing in the way we relate with food and our community and our identity. You know, we all, especially here in the United States, we're this melting pot um, that I think people are very aware of. But the challenge of that is that there's this emptiness in that sense where we don't have those connections ancestrally. And when we do, uh, they, they kind of get uh, like transmogrified the way like we think of like New Jersey Italians, not to pick on anyone in particular, but the way New Jersey Italians doesn't really reflect uh, Italian culture. It's its own thing. And that's okay. But it's it's very different. And it's that that sense of I want to belong to this identity. And how do I get there? And um, when you're not in that same place, where, you know, why does Italian culture have X, Y, and Z? Well, ultimately, it's because people used to live much more locally. So your culture comes from the things that are available to you, whether that's the food, the resources and things like that. And when you take that culture and stick it someplace else, it's hard to replicate because those things aren't connected anymore. Uh, and, yeah. and it's it's a really complicated and uh, by no means am I trying to say like I have the answers for these things. But I think these are the conversations that are really important when we start thinking about like local food movements and how do I be a better steward of whether it's my front yard or uh, a couple acres of woodlands or whatever it might be. How do I pair my personal identity, my background, my interests, and the needs of this this location? Um, how do I how do I bring all these things together? Well, and I think something you said is so interesting, and I'm kind of thinking about it as we're talking. But um, you know, whether it's eating foods that are out of season, or being from a different culture, I'm French and I moved here to Westchester, and you know, I have little things that I try and do to maintain that heritage, but it's very Americanized. I make crepes for my daughter on Saturday. Um, you know, these little things, I speak a little bit of French to them, even though I speak fluently just to expose them and have some books, but you know, it's not the same, right? And I think it's all because what I was thinking of when you were talking is about transportation, you know, and it's all happened so recently 
recently that we were able to fly over here or take a ship over here, that we're able to bring these strawberries from other places to us any time of year, that we're able to grow in a different way that allows us to have off-season foods all year long. So I just think that you're right. These concepts are so new to us the last couple of maybe 100 years, whereas before there were thousands of years of us living a totally different way. Yeah. Right, having to live with the seasons, having to stay in localized communities because traveling long distances was really difficult and dangerous. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And um, to piggyback on that, traditionally, if you moved thousands of miles away, if you somehow managed to do it, you became very quickly absorbed into the culture of the place you went to. And, um, you know, you think about it, like I, I think about my own parents and you couldn't just like zoom Skype somebody back in Italy. How are things going? Like what's going on? You very quickly were basically cut off from that culture and the, 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 the evolution of that culture. We, we tend to think of, especially when we talk about like our European heritage for folks like myself and you as these static things, but they're really not. Um, you know, there might be these very wide, broad strokes we can paint about French or Italian culture. Um, but just like here in the United States, that changes very quickly when you're in an intimate relationship with it. So when you would come someplace new, those things would get very hard. There would be a very hard cutoff and that doesn't really happen today. And, um, that, that manifests in a bunch of different ways, which is probably a little bit outside the scope of what you wanted to talk about. Um, but again, these are, you know, that, that beginning stages of those conversations I think are really important. Yeah, I think so too. And I think the exciting thing is, you know, if we treated it like they had to back then, where you're completely cut off from your culture, you have to completely adapt or be ostracized from the culture that you were moving into, you know, how can we think about the place where we're living now as its own community with its own culture outside of what we're bringing to it? And how can we adapt? And it's a perfect transition because, as you know, I'm moving. So I live right outside New York City right now. I can see the city from my driveway. I love the connection to the urbanness where there's so many communities mushed together and they maintain a lot of their integrity in terms of, you know, speaking a native language, eating native foods, having native restaurants, but they're mushed right up against another culture that's completely different. So they're constantly having to work together or even collaborate. So anyway, I moved to Westchester and it felt totally different. Uh, in a good way, but you know, I live on 0.13 acres, so I'm still very close to my neighbors. They watch me watch bad reality shows at night and I watch them make dinner and we don't have any land. Nobody has a garden. We have like a community garden in town that some industrious people, um, work, but, uh, you know, now I'm moving to Connecticut on 15 acres and that probably doesn't sound like much to you, Andy. It's but- more than I have. Oh, okay. Well, and it has an organic garden. It has a lot of woodland. And I, you know, am a fish out of water in this new, as you would call it, community. (laughs) So I'll have to learn to adapt to what they're doing. But also, I really want to appreciate my new environment. Going from a postage stamp of a yard to 15 acres that's mostly forest and woodland, I want to embrace it and appreciate it and you know, get value out of it, not financially, but emotionally, spiritually, and regain that connection that I lost over two decades ago when I moved to Manhattan and hadn't seen anything bigger 
in terms of grass than Central Park in years. Sure. Yeah, it's always fun and exciting and nerve wracking to go to a new space. And especially when when we're thinking about like land stewardship. And I think when we, we start thinking about like you're talking about these different areas, these the organic uh, garden, the forest lands and all of these things, which all have different communities and these complex histories based on not just recent, you know, invasive species and things like that, but also, you know, the long history of colonialism and, um, you know, how the land had been stewarded for a number of years before colonists showed up. Now, um, the first thing that I recommend everyone do when they have this opportunity to go someplace new, um, have the opportunity to uh, steward a piece of land that has this long and complicated history is to just take a minute and, like you said, appreciate it and learn it. And, um, you know, I can tell you myself, I've got seven ish acres here. And I'm, despite having been here now almost four and a half, almost five years, I will still walk around and be like, wow, I didn't know that tree was there. And, you know, it might not be a big tree, um, but you'll, you'll start to notice these things that despite you walking through that forest every day, oh, well, I didn't walk through it at this time of year. I didn't know there were ostrich ferns over there, um, you know, or these other flowers that just bloom for a few weeks, uh, whether it's pink lady slipper or whatever it might be, you'll walk through and you'll see this thing that you've never seen before, even if you walk that trail 20, 30, 50 times. And I think as a, a society that we're so used to the HGTV, you know, go in and out in 30 days and renovate a house, you know, the idea of you've moved here, spend a year and just see all of the landscape throughout the seasons and what's mm. there is really difficult. Uh, and and that's, I think, one of the most important things to learn the, the flowers that come up in the early spring before the leaves are out on the trees to see what are the last things blooming on the landscape see the way the water flows on the landscape. How does it pool in the spring when the ground starts to thaw and the snow is melting? All of those things are so important when you start thinking about, okay, where do I want to put my garden? I want to put some fruit trees in. I want to put some nut trees in. All of those things play into that. And you can't really make a good decision until you've seen, okay, this spot is uh, a location where water builds up in the spring. I had wanted to put some fruit trees, but maybe I'll put some willows that can do really well there. And if that's the case, what willows am I going to choose? Because native willows um, are one of the most beneficial trees for our landscapes mm. uh, in terms of the the insect population that it supports. It's something like 270 different native uh, insects rely on willows to survive. Uh, and oh, I think that, yeah, and, and those things are really important to think about because you you could be at the you know Lowe's big box store whatever it might be and you see the the willow tree there and then you see the uh, red maple and that red maple that's non-native it might support some bugs you're you're going to see bugs on it but it's not going to have the same impact as that native willow tree that's going to support so much more diversity in life and in that diversity a lot more self-regulation around the things that we worry about whether it's insects and all these other things having that that complex web of life helps regulate things so that specific species don't go out of control. And now it's time for a quick commercial break. Are you a fan of this podcast? Do you wish there was even more juicy content for you to sink your ears into? Well, 
there is. You can become a premium member of this podcast for $5.99 a month and get full access to an archive of over 50 bonus episodes. Additionally, we release a bonus episode every single month. That's a ton of extra content, including my personal interior design diaries, extra tips, my talking about trends, and so much more. Additionally, you'll be keeping us on the airwaves each and every week because your premium membership money goes directly back to making this podcast amazing. Check us out at affordableinteriordesign.com, click on podcast to learn more, and to become a premium member today. Well, speaking of, this is a small tangent. Sure. But I'm a big fan. I love this idea of, you know, not introducing foreign plants as your first go-to, right? Instead, introducing something native so that things that are already there can thrive. The thing I don't want to thrive, speaking of water and bugs, I do not want any mosquitoes on my property. I get it. I get it. They're natural life cycle. I am anti-mosquito. So I was thinking of installing like a lot of bat boxes. What do you think about this strategy? (laughs) Yeah, I think it's not a bad idea. Bats eat a lot of bugs. Um, They're not the only thing that eats a lot of bugs too. And, um, you know, it's important to think about what eats the larva and where does the larva larva form uh, so it doesn't even get to that stage. Yeah. So you can go down this rabbit hole and the reality is that when you start going down the rabbit hole, you start picking apart all the different things, it, it's going to quickly become overwhelming. Because like I said, it's this complex web that uh, ties everything together and in that process reinforces and regulates all these different pieces. So that's why when invasive species come in and they don't fit into that mesh, there's nothing keeping it in check. They can do so much damage. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily they're bad. Um, we have plenty of naturalized species that are you know, like dandelions, dandelions are a non-native uh, grass. And, you know, they're not destroying the ecosystem or anything like that. They, they, that. they provide a lot of good, you know, benefits for uh, pollinators and things like that. Plus, they're, they make a great salad. So, so, like, the idea that you don't want any non-natives isn't necessarily the right answer, but more mm-hmm. about how does this fit into a bigger picture and making that responsible decision and not trying to dissect the process in the sense of, well, like I was just saying, like, well, what eats the larva? What eats this? What eats that? Yeah, I need if something you... that eats mosquito larva. Come on, just <laughs> tell me, Andy. Uh, so I'm going to disrupt this web. I'm just letting you yeah, know. Yeah, you can disrupt the web. It'll fight back, though. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, the idea is just basically, you know, taking some meaningful steps to provide some of those keystone species, uh, whether it's willow or oak or hickory or whatever it might be based on the natural ecological conditions where you're at. And that's going to give you a lot of support and set that foundation for what you want to see. Yeah. Well, and the thing about this home is it was built um, in the 1900s, like I think 190, I can't remember what, but my favorite thing to do is to go to the historical society the day I buy a house. That's what I did with this house and learn the history and learn who was there and what did the landscape look like before all these other houses were there? And, you know, was there really stucco on the outside or was it brick before? So I just love digging in, but I hadn't really thought about the history of the land. 
because think about how long that big old tree's been there, much longer than this house. So I just love the idea of getting to intimately know everything around the house, not just what's inside the house and thinking of that as an important characteristic of the history of the space. Yeah. And I think it's much more interesting than or accessible than people think. Mm. So, you know, you talked about like, well, there's this big old oak tree that's a couple hundred years old. All right. So now you've gone back 1800 years or uh, to 1800 or so. Um, all right. So do you see and I, I won't go too deep into this because this is getting like kind of in the weeds. But if you know how to read the landscape, you can say that that spot right there, this line of trees, that's because of a storm that happened 300 years ago. And, you know, there was a, a nurse tree right there that had fallen down. And I know what storm it was based on the direction the tree fell and where the oh root gosh. ball was. And you can go back pretty far and see this very long, interesting history of what happened on that landscape hundreds of years ago. Um, not to plug too early, we did an episode on that um, reading the forest, reading the landscape. Um, but Tom Wessels is also a great resource out of Vermont who does a mm. lot of, who's written a couple books on, uh, how you can go in the forest or even your own backyard and start to figure out what has happened over the last couple hundred years, which is really cool. Like, especially so if you're cool. into history so and I mean, cool. and then like you, there's this other piece where you're in new England and, um, there was this thing called the Merino sheep craze 200 years ago, where basically the sh very short story is, a bunch of sheep that were worth a lot of money showed up in New England. Everyone cut down every tree to put them to make room for them. Eighty percent of the of New England was clear cut in oh a short gosh. in about twenty years, and um, that that obviously has left rippling effects on the landscape. And uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the rock walls that everyone talks about in New England. Yeah, this, I have a lot of rock walls in Connecticut. Yeah, so so, yes. so those are predominantly actually from this period, not from before oh. like people always say that it's from before this time but you know back 400 years ago when s people were cutting down trees and starting to farm the landscape they didn't rock walls are a lot of work yeah yeah you know, they they were cutting timber which was cheap and available and putting up timber post fences because like that's quick and cheap and keeps the animals in right it was only later on when all the trees were all gone that they had to use oh. the rocks that is fascinating because my kids and I are always like looking at these rock walls and, you know, when I'm always telling them, think about how much work, think about how heavy that rock was, yeah. you know, and I really had no idea that that was kind of the impetus for rock versus wood. That's so yeah. interesting. Yeah. And it's all these things. You start looking at the landscape and there's this beautiful and complicated story that exists there. And in reality, you know, I use the term, you know, steward a lot because, we are just a blip in that story, but we can be a really meaningful blip with the the selections that we make. I mean, if you're going to go buy a house, the the deal breaker isn't whether or not it was a, a, a red maple or a willow tree in the front yard. But for the ecology, it's so meaningful whether or not you're picking, you know, especially mm. those keystone species, how that affects the health of that that site. That is so interesting. Well, and I love the idea of calling yourself a steward. I, when I was looking for houses, only wanted a historic home because I like fitting into a timeline. And we wound up finding this house. And one thing I love about this house is it has a deep 
very interesting history that the previous owners have maintained and were able to pass down to us in a story. But also there's all these remnants on the property of other people. There's plaques inside the house. Like there's a plaque to Kenneth. There's a plaque to John. There's a plaque on the front porch reminding you that this is not your home. You know, you are a piece of this home's fabric in terms of a quilt, but you're just one patch. And like the door knocker says Spencer for the person who built this house. And I'm not going to take it off. There have been four other families that lived there since, but it's an important part of that patchwork for me. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I I agree. I used to live in a, a very old house from the early 1800s and had those same experiences of um, you know, as we were trying to update it, it hadn't been updated in 80, 90 years. It was due. And, you know, what, what is our responsibility as owners of this house? That's a very old colonial, you know, even if it's not necessarily my aesthetic, I, I have a responsibility to keep the general integrity of the, the house and what it represents to exist as it does and not to go in with, you know, for example, a super modern kitchen and all these other things, even even if that is what I like, because I've just negated these generations of people that have lived here and the 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 interests of the house itself as its own, uh, I guess, like sovereign thing that exists on the earth, whether or not I'm there, just like I'm not there anymore. And it still stands as it as I, at least I left it, uh, you know, to right, be somewhat right. representative of that time where it came from. Well, and people who listen to the podcast have probably heard me say this, but um, I'll share sort of my thoughts with you. You know, sometimes you buy a house that doesn't fit your style, right? Because of maybe the location where you're wanting to move or your price point or whatever. But I do feel like, say you are moving in with your partner. There's actually three people that are going to live there. You, your partner, and the house. And just as your partner would get a say in, hey, I want the room to do this. I want to have a sectional. I want to put my TV here. The architecture of the home gets a say. And if you do something that's super counterintuitive to the architecture, super incongruous with what's already going on or the native sort of vibe of the house, it's not going to feel quite right. So sure, you can do it, right? And maybe you should do it to put your own stamp on things. But it's just like when you go against your partner or just negate what they have to say and do what you want, it's not quite working for everyone. And so you want to think about everybody when you're making design choices, you, your partner, and the structure itself. It has a say whether you like it or not. And it's going to tell you based on the flow, based on just the way things work and the way things look, if you made the right choice or not. Yeah. And, you know, the landscape does the same thing, you know, uh, Mm. to continue that metaphor. Yeah. um, Like I was saying, whether or not you put a willow there, why would you put a willow versus an oak tree if you're concerned about natives? Well, look at the landscape. What kind of soil do you have? What's the pH? How wet? How dry is it? How sandy is it? All of these different things are going to tell you, even if you put that tree in the ground, is it even going to survive? It's going to dictate basically within, you know, a margin of error, what what's going to be successful there and what's what's the right species for where you are and that goes back to understanding how to read that landscape and understanding like i said to go back to the example i used if you can tell a tree fell here 200 years ago and all these trees came up from it that gives you an idea what species were around and dropping seeds to know what would have been there and kind of um how that uh, landscape naturally regenerates and how that might guide your decisions about okay, you know what, oaks are really great. 
they're important. I've got a bunch of oak trees. What else would have been in an oak forest here? Is this an oak hickory biome? And if it is, then where are all the hickories? Maybe that's my job, my responsibility as the steward to incorporate species that would have been here 200 years ago that uh, whether it was indigenous people or um, without any guidance that these would have been the species that would have been here. And it's my responsibility to, to recognize that and do what I can to, to bring that landscape back to its full, full vigor. Mm. Well, and one question, you know, you mentioned the pH of the soil, you'd mentioned learning the history. For us novices, I'm a total novice, how do we determine what the pH is and what these different things are? You know, I, I have egg on my face, but when I moved to this house, which was also old and had amazing stories, I wanted this certain type of tree. I just wanted it. And I went online. I was like, okay, we get that kind of sun. I think this will be good. I clicked and bought it on some kind of website. And within two weeks, it was dead, right? And it came and it had like little leaves and stuff. It was so promising. And I felt I'd failed this tree, but I didn't care about the history. I didn't know about pH of soil. I probably set it up for failure from the start. How do we figure these things out? So there's a number of things you can do, and it depends on how invested you want to be in it, really. So you don't mildly necessarily... invested. Very yeah. Much. So mildly, say, say you don't want to spend a lot of money. You're willing to do some time, but you don't want to spend any money. Um, the, the first thing is you can do a soil sample, which is literally just dig up some soil and send it to a lab. Most, uh, states have extension schools that offer pretty cheap ish soil assessments. Um, the alternative is to just look at what's growing naturally there and look up, you know, if say you're in a suburban neighborhood or a rural suburban neighborhood, what are the trees that are in the woods? I wanted something totally different. I got like this blue flowering willow. It was going to be so different. There's nothing blue for miles. Maybe that should have been my first clue. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, willow is also really demanding in terms of, again, the so the sandiness of the soil. So if you have clay soils, they're not going to do well. Mm. And um, it's easy not to know that when you're digging in your front yard because you know they bring in topsoil. So you have nice grass and all of these things. So it can be really hard to know what that... that um, the soil beneath the natural, the native soil is, and those roots will find out pretty quickly. Mm. And um, so the first thing I would say, like I said, is to look around at what's around you and what species, um, you know, you're coming to New England, you can narrow that down pretty quickly. Um, looking at the water table, do you have wetlands? Are there places that kind of, you know, fill in when that spring rains come in and the ground's still uh, frozen? You know, look for the spots that you can see uh, are there ferns around, you know, all the different species that might point to specific types of environments that you can start to narrow a little bit of, okay, these are the species that live in this one place. And that's, that means like, this is my, my uh, collection of species that because I have X, Y, and Z, I can also integrate and they'll do well because they're a part of that family, that community, that biome. And that can be as, as simple or as complicated as you want it to be. You can get a, you know, one of those Peterson's field guides, uh, forests of North America, any of those types of books, and those will be broken out by those biomes. And you can quickly see, okay, I live in XYZ area. It's going to be one of these three or four types of ecosystems. What, what species are around me? And then you're going to know pretty quickly, okay, these species all do well in soil pH of XYZ, wetlands or drylands. Now I know what I've got to work with, what fits into that that I want to plant. Yeah. Yeah. Set yourself up for success because I lost $89 in three weeks. And 
hopes and dreams. And I dug my own hole, which was not easy. It's not easy to dig a hole. Um, but, you know, the other thing I'm excited about moving to this big property is that I can have some space to breathe. And I was listening to this Tim Ferriss podcast, and he was talking about forest bathing, which I think is there's like a Japanese kind of philosophy about, you know, walking through nature regularly as a way to meditate and ground yourself and get back to, as you were mentioning before, how we lived, you know, hundreds of years ago versus just a couple hundred years ago. So what's your thought on forest bathing? Are you a bather? I am not a bather. I spend Ooh. a lot of time in the forest, though. Um I think it's just a term to get people interested in doing things that we've done traditionally. You know, there's numerous case studies done on people going into natural settings and having documented medical improvements, whether it's stress or, you know, heartbeat uh, rates and things like that, that show that being in nature is very calming. And that makes sense. We, as much as we try to pretend we are natural creatures that belong out in the woods or in the prairie, you know, more specifically like the Savannah Prairie. Um, so to not be in that 24 hours a day is, you know, no different than putting a lion in a, you know, a zoo. Mm. Uh, we're just, we're just very malleable species that are incredibly good at living in like a diversity of conditions. And I think we've used that to our detriment to stick ourselves in these cities and boxes that we forget that that's not where we're supposed to be. And, you know, some people are afraid of leaving that at this point. And that's, Totally. You know, that comes with its own set of issues and challenges. Well, I loved my skyscraper cage. I didn't know I was in the zoo of Manhattan. But, you know, it's so funny because I'm feeling really uh, – when, when we were looking to buy a house, I didn't want 15 acres. Like, I was like, this seems like a burden. I love this house. It's perfect. But 15 acres is so intimidating. I don't even want it. And then I was talking to my real estate agent. She's like, you could sell some of it back to the city or whatever you want to do. And then I was thinking, I was like – I do want it. What if I just like explore 15 acres? What if I just walk around and find some stuff and become a different person? So I'm excited to think of it as more of a return to myself than a departure from myself. So I like this idea of thinking about, you know, the urban cage versus my native habitat. Yeah. And there's there's going to be a lot of opportunities for you to rediscover things. And I don't think, you know, I think about like, you know, we stick our kids in school for 12 years, uh, not including kindergarten, college. And it's like, all right, you've got these basic skills so you can navigate the world we live in. And that's great and fine. But historically, that would have been time learning with our parents. What can you eat? What can't you eat? What does this mean in, in the ecosystem around us? Is this a good or bad thing? How do we steward this land? And that same developmental time was still used to develop skills. Um, so the idea that you go into a, a forest or, a, again, a prairie or whatever it might be, and that you're going to learn all this stuff just because it's in a book or you've bought some books and you're going to learn it in a couple of years is like laughable. Like this, this is humans spent their entire lives learning how to manage and steward lands. And we're starting in many cases at 30, at 40. So that means you're probably going to spend the rest of your life still learning, you know, just in your local ecosystem. And that's like exciting and cool that you can go someplace and learn something new every single day. And you can just go down a rabbit hole. You see some cool mushrooms and suddenly you're reading about mushrooms and, you know, you, you could spend a year or two doing that and still just scratch the surface. And then 
you see a salamander and suddenly you're learning about salamanders and like it, it never really ends, which is just somewhat comforting for me at least. Well, <clears throat> guys, if you're listening and you're feeling like it's comforting to you, here's my strategy. Watch alone. Listen. Do you watch alone, Andy? I don't know what that is. Oh my gosh. Where they drop these people in different um, outdoor environments and they have to survive using only 10 Okay, tools. yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, so just watch alone because now I feel like a true nature expert after watching all seven seasons. I didn't even have to leave my house. and I didn't even have to look at a tree in real life and I learned so much. Uh, Andy's rolling his eyes inside. <laughs> um, and then, so watch alone, definitely. Go out there and forest bathe. But the real thing you'll want to do is catch Andy's podcast. So Andy, tell us <laughs> where people can find you, where they can get legitimate information, where they can take those deep dives and go down those rabbit holes, because this is so fascinating to me. And I'm sure once I'm actually in the environment, I'll get even more excited, intrigued, um, curious. Yeah. And the best thing about doing it is then bringing the community in to do it and building mm -hmm. that community and learning from that community. And, and that can be as simple as who is selling mushrooms at the farmer's market, because they're probably not, they might be growing them, but they might not be. And if they're not, they can probably help you out a lot. And they'll probably be happy to come eat some of your mushrooms if they can get some for free. Somebody's and... got to use my organic garden, this big old organic garden. I, I'm not getting near it for a couple of years. It, it's overwhelming. Somebody's got to farm it. Would somebody want to farm my organic garden in Connecticut? Yeah, maybe. And <laughs> that's how you build your community, connect with people. Um, and, and that's, I think, the part that gets missing sometimes. You talked about alone. We have this obsession with the idea that like you're going to be self-sufficient, you individually or you and your family. And historically, that's never been the case. Mm. Um, and I, I, um, I think people realize that when they move to 15 acres and they say, I'm going to farm all my own food and do all these things and they realize there's no way to do it there's not enough time in the day people specialize in things because they're good at them and they can do them efficiently and they can build uh the value of scale in doing things quickly and that's okay we don't we aren't supposed to be able to do everything well and, and spoiler uh, alert the number one reason why they fail at alone why they like tap out number one reason is because they get lonely they miss community. It's like totally outside of a comfort zone to be that alone for that long. We need each other. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Not just for being good at things like collecting dandelions or whatever it might be, but also because we're a social species. We're made to do this right here, talk and explore our different opinions and thoughts on things and just exist together. And learn from each other. I have learned so much from you today. And well, you. I've listened to a couple episodes, but now I need to go back and listen to a lot more. So tell <laughs> us where we can sure. learn more from you. Yeah. So the podcast is The Poor Proles Almanac. You can find it at wherever you're listening to this podcast. Our website is poorproles.com. We also have uh, an Instagram handle. I do not recommend it. It's terrible. Uh, we also do, though, have a second Instagram handle called PPA Sites. Now, PPA Sites, S-I-T-E-S, is basically what you're looking for. The idea is to create a basic key for people that say, I am interested in doing something for my local ecology, but I don't know anything. So how do I go from, I don't know what an oak tree looks like, to these are some native flowers that I want to plant in the ground without having to understand botany. And the idea is, okay, here are some basic skills, kind of like what we just talked about. How do you figure out where you are, 
what's important for your local site, what would naturally be there, what could naturally be there, and how do I do this in the most basic way possible where I can help a site regenerate and eventually be less hands-on where I don't want to be stewarding it all the time. I don't want to be weeding. I don't want to do all these different things. How do I get out of doing that, but still doing something good? And that's what the PPA sites Instagram is. Um, It's also ppasites.org. And again, that's S I T E S. And you can, it's still in the early stages. It's only been around for about a month, but the general idea is basically what I just talked through with you about how to figure out what to plant that's native and, how to know what's native to where you are, not down the street. Yeah. Well, I'm so excited. I'm going to check that out. It sounds like cliff notes for the eco-curious, and that's me. Basically, yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'm going to call it that from now on. Sorry. There Stick we go. It. There we go. Well, <laughs> I am your target client, I think. So I am definitely going to go check that out. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom, your philosophies, your ideas with us. It certainly has opened my mind and made me even more excited to move to Connecticut. Awesome. Betsy, this has been great. Thank you, Andy. You've asked for it, and we have answered the call. For years, you've been saying, Betsy, you're talking about all these great design concepts, but we can't visualize them. You're describing the picture that the listener sent in of their problem, and we wish we could see that picture too. After all, a picture is worth a thousand words, and I do my best to describe them, but there's nothing like seeing it for yourself. And that's why Affordable Interior Design, the podcast, now has a YouTube channel. Not only do we have a YouTube channel where you could see recordings and clips of these podcast episodes, we also have an Instagram, a Facebook, and so many other exciting things. You should check it out. Head over to affordableinteriordesign.com slash links. Once again, affordableinteriordesign.com slash L-I-N-K-S links. And when you go there, you will see links to our YouTube page, our Instagram page, our Facebook page, and more. Please check it out, follow and subscribe so you can see everything I'm talking about. A big thank you to our amazing producer, Catherine Heller, to Aton and the MBCR House Band, and to Affordable Interior Design, the sponsor of this podcast and the premier place to get an amazing look on a budget. Check out affordableinteriordesign.com. If you guys love the show, the very best way to support us is by spreading the word. Tell your friends or write us an awesome review on iTunes. So until next week, guys, thanks so much for joining us, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye.